You're listening to City as a Playground podcast by the Leadership Foundations. My name's Rick Kendall, and I'm here with Dave Hillis. And today, Dave, we're going to talk about engaging leaders. We are, Rick. I'm uh, very excited about this podcast. Um, just to remind our uh, listeners, we have uh, been talking about what makes a Leadership Foundation a Leadership Foundation on the ground in one of 79 places throughout the world. And what Leadership Foundations has come up with is what we call our uh, wheel of permanent change that is made up of three functions. The first is engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill. The second is developing the capacity of others. And the third is creating joint initiative of service. And mm -hmm. so we are going to be focusing in on that first function, engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill, which we really think in some ways in Leadership Foundation, Rick, is, is sort of the... Uh, you know, um, I in the midst of the storm. If you can touch that, uh, leaders, uh, the kind of leaders uh, that sit in every city around the world, then you really are in a pretty good position to actually affect leaders for the good moving forward, or, or affect cities uh, moving forward. And so Eric um, is uh, wonderfully positioned to do that. He has been the president of the Local Leadership Foundation in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Uh, he probably is uh, particularly excited today given that his beloved uh, Kentucky Wildcats are uh, getting ready to tee it up against Stony Brook, which should be just a, uh, you know, absolute classic uh, on the uh, basketball court. Uh, but along with that, then Eric is also heading up Leadership Foundation's Global Youth Initiative. Right. And this is a, a result of three partnerships, one with the Basketball Hall of Fame, uh, the second is with the National Basketball Retired Players Association, and the third is the Department of Justice. And those three partnerships have built a platform for leadership foundations to mentor youth throughout the world, which of course really becomes a part of the pipeline to develop leaders of good faith and goodwill to help our cities become better moving forward. Wow, and so just what's Eric doing in his spare time, you know? Like <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, he also is an author, and we are going to have a chance to talk a little bit about a, a book that we mentioned in the, uh, the Whispercast called Loudership, and uh, that in and of itself um, is, is funny. The uh, sub-caption to the book is increasing the volume of your own opinion. <laughs> and it's, it's really uh, Eric's take on the Leadership Foundation sort of industry out there and that everybody's hanging out their plaque trying to say, here are the five steps to become a leader. And they have all these little sound bites like, you know, there's no I in team and think outside the box. And Eric, in a really elegant and I, I would argue a very funny way, takes a lot of those things and turns them upside down, almost in a Stephen Colbert kind of way. Mm -hmm and shows that, yes, Leadership Foundation is absolutely essential and critical, but let's, uh, let's do this with a little bit more of a sober eye and a, a commitment to, um, you know, really the hard work it takes to being a good leader, uh, particularly in cities. Yeah, and, you know, I had a chance to spend a few days with Eric, and uh, mm -hmm. it's not that, for, in my view, not that common to see somebody that has that wit and wisdom combo that's oh, a great and, description yeah, yeah so I think it's it's uh, he's a special leader and is doing a, a great job in, in a very specific area but also not only locally in Lexington but then like you said uh, through this uh, global initiative like really affecting uh, you know kids lives through mentorship all over the world so that's exciting well, Eric Geary, it's, uh, it is great to have you on the Sidious Playground podcast. Uh, Rick and I have been looking forward to this uh, for a whole host of reasons, um, some of which include uh, just the good friend and the colleague you have become to both of us. Uh, secondly, what we do anticipate is going to be your good insights around the subject at hand today. And of course, we hope uh, to be able to further reference uh, your book, which we have both had a chance to read, uh, Loudership, Increasing the uh, Volume of Your Own Opinion, which I think is a remarkable book with regard to leadership moving forward. So again, Eric, thank you. Um, we uh, have already made clear to everybody that you come to us as president of the Lexington Leadership Foundation and have been doing that for the last 10 years. 
And now you are, of course, very, very critically heading up the Global Youth Initiative for Leadership Foundations around the world. So, Eric, it really is our pleasure to uh, welcome you to the Sidious Playground podcast. Well, thank you. I'm very honored to be here, for sure. Great. Well, let, let me start here, um, Eric, right here at the beginning. Um, as we have set up this particular podcast, we are looking at the first function the, of three functions that makes up a leadership foundation. Um, as you and, and so many know, uh, in trying to define a leadership foundation over the last number of years, we recognized that there is this uh, permanent wheel of change that leadership foundations is about. Uh, and that's engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill, increasing the capacity of others, and creating joint services, uh, joint areas of service uh, moving forward. And so this morning, we'll be talking a bit about this first function, engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill, which we've oftentimes talked about, Eric, at least within leadership foundations, that if you get this right, um, you really do stand um, a... a in a very good position to help make cities better. And of course, the flip side is if you don't get this right, uh, it's the work is going to be very difficult moving forward. You know, in light of you being the president of the Lexington Leadership Foundation, heading up the Global Youth Initiative, why do you think that this function is so important in making a city as a playground rather than a battleground? Yeah, it's a great question and quite honestly, um, only getting into the Leadership Foundation movement, um, you know, years ago did I even consider this as an option that, that the city could be a playground. My first step inside the city in 1995, I became an urban youth pastor, and my wife and I moved into a little house uh, on a street called East Oak Hill. It was home of the Oak Hill Bloods, and uh, at that mm -hmm. time, gang activity was uh, running rampant through inner city Knoxville and and everything felt like a battleground quite honestly mm -hmm. and you know the the interesting thing is even between uh, ministries between organizations between agencies is that it you know there was as much um, there was much rivalry and battle to be had outside of the actual work that you were doing so it's it's almost like everything in the beginning was a battle and mm -hmm. um, coming into the leadership foundation movement and just hearing the idea that that there is actually play to be had and that kind of kingdom perspective of what is in heaven on earth in our cities hmm. was it's quite refreshing and so uh, you know when I think about playground or battleground I think of the you know the pre-fall reality of the garden or what we expect to see in heaven um, and the battle does not exist there and it, it's um, mm -hmm. it, it is a place where I think that you know God even wants to play ball and mm. um, that joy uh, runs rampant and, and that little expression of what we see in the word about you know children playing in the streets and mm -hmm. um, women and men sitting on the porches is actually a, a representation of what can be uh, can exist in our cities right now. So understanding that um, this is um, uh, there is a battle. Of course, we know in Scripture mm -hmm. um, that, that we we are fighting a battle not against flesh and blood, but but that in our cities, um, engaging people all around is it's much more enticing and a much more, you know, a good position to be in, a much more kingdom-minded position to be in, to be in an open-handed, open-armed, others kind of curvature um, where we work together to make impact. And so the Leadership Foundations has taught me a lot in that particular regard. Oh, that's, that's great, Eric. You know, I, uh, you made a comment, and I've, uh, I've oftentimes thought about this as well, that when you look at one of the, you know, uh, <clears throat> pretty significant realities of a l urban landscape, which is gangs, um, and that they, of course, are rivaling with one another from street to street and block to block. I've oftentimes thought the only institution I know that is in more rivalry <clears throat> than gangs 
uh, happens to be the faith community, uh, Catholics yeah. with Lutherans, you know, Baptists with Pentecostals. Yeah. Um, has that been your experience as well? And if so, what, uh, what have you found uh, to be most helpful as you are engaging leaders of both good faith and goodwill to create a kind of playground, non-rivalous reality, say over and against what oftentimes seems to be so, um, you know, um, fundamental to the way most of us relate to one another? That's a, a, a good question. It, it has been my experience that, um, that the bitterness and, um, you know, the fists raised between, uh, you know, inside of the body against, against itself, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. But it's actually a diminishing experience in uh, Lexington, where I serve. Mm. And so, I, yeah, which is refreshing. We actually talk about it often here uh, with our little team at Lexington Leadership Foundation, how in the last 10 years we have seen uh, we have seen a, more of an open-handedness um, between the body, and um, you know what what that does for our hearts. Imagine what that's doing for you know the uh, the bridegroom. You know, as he mm-hmm. sees the bride becoming whole and loving um, itself. So, but, but the difficulties uh, still exist. We have found that um, having um, a group like a leadership foundation um, that does not have a name attached to it nor um, is um, competing for the same type of space as as congregations might be mm-hmm. um, has been a real um, a real benefit to our city almost as an intermediary or convener mm-hmm. um, seems like that, that we've been given uh, what we have called in our movement a particular charism of bringing um, people of faith and people of goodwill together. And, and I've seen actually our city government here, our current mayor, um, has opened um, because of the need, especially when we had really tight budget constraints um, here in our city, has opened um, you know the recreation department to the church for our goodwill and, um, and has engaged the body of Christ in meeting the needs of the city and so actually we're we're very uh happy at the progress that we're Mm -hmm. seeing here locally you know along with uh your comment about uh, the importance of the role of the intermediary which i think is is absolutely true and groups like uh, the stanford social innovation uh, has made a number of comments about that important group in any kind of city. What, what other things have you learned um, at the Lexington Leadership Foundation that has helped bring about this better um, reality of, of groups, uh, individuals, leaders working together, say over and against competing with one another like they were 10 years ago? Yeah, the, you know, the, the old youth pastors like Rick or you or myself, whether it be Young Life or the place I started in ministry in the city, you know, we would we would say everything lives and and dies with relationships, and um, mm-hmm. I think that's where it's at. We've we've had uh, a particular initiative here at our leadership foundation that um, has brought um, groups together, pastors and ministry leaders and agencies, in particular kind of sectors of our city geographically and people are looking across tables at each other um, and spending time with each other and there's just nothing that beats you mm-hmm. know uh, weeping with someone uh, or laughing with someone um, and so we have found that that is the absolute key um, is to bring those those groups together uh, for relationship building and it seems so kind of like, of course, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is actually still the thing that does it. You know, it's still that secret sauce of, yep. um, yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, Rick and I have made <clears throat> comments about this on previous podcasts, that the, the biblical idea that captures, I think, a bit of what you just described, um, Eric, is the whole idea of the table, and that yeah. the thing that that uh, and particularly as we here are on the cusp of Holy Week and you watch 
um, at the beginning of the week, Palm Sunday, where everybody is celebrating this king as he rides into Jerusalem. And six days later, uh, they crucify him. You go, well, something changed um, mm. from that initial reception to the end. And one of the things that surfaces time and time again is that he ate at the table, you know, with those that uh, were considered um, not a part of the in group. And yeah. I, I think that that idea of a table um, and multiple tables in cities around the world that leadership foundations are always trying to set so that people can come and eat and talk mm -hmm. and develop relationship is exactly right. So I think that's beautifully said. Yeah. Hey, Eric, this is Rick. I wanted to talk to you about your book as well. Um, I know um, having spent a little bit of time together that it might shock you that I could read, but I actually, <laughs> <laughs> I actually read it and, and, uh, and, you know, before I knew it was satire, I thought it was really good. Then I thought, oh, wait a minute, the joke's <laughs> on me. No, but I really did love it. And, and I, the, the question I had is um, um, kind of where, how did this idea of sort of poking fun at the leadership cult, you know, uh, uh, sort of emerge in your brain? I mean, was it just from, um, you know, sort of uh, some post-it notes that you collected over time or you just one one night you just woke up and sat straight up and said, hey, you know, this is, this is this could be funny or or what yeah that's a uh, so there are two uh, there are two things one is uh you know the the easy answer answer is it was kind of one of those eureka moments i was actually in a leadership conference and uh the guy up front was the expert um and and you could tell i think that he knew he was the expert right and so <laughs> and so he was giving us some principle was that because he had um, that sign underneath his neck that yeah. said i'm the expert <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it was there was no doubt in the room that this man was an expert and i say that a bit tongue in cheek but it is one of the problems with leadership is that just by nature of certain positions um you know we're um, those who are in a leadership position can have this um, doom of uh, ego that clouds mm. uh, most everything they say, and, and it's almost it is almost cultish in that um, you know they then then we go about writing about it, then we go about teaching about it, and um, you know it's you know I've read so many books um, that are principles or laws or axioms and. And they've been helpful to me, and I certainly, um, you know, w would not put any of those very wise people down. But they, they've also been a bit, uh, you know, I've found that I've needed more than, uh, I've needed a leadership perspective, not another principle. And so I was in one of those moments, and uh, I was listening to the guy, and I thought, man, you know, I think I've heard this before. <laughs> you know, matter of fact, I think I've heard this like 20 times. There's and I was feeling like there's nothing new under the sun, and that was that was one of the things that came out. But that is the superficial, actual reason um, that I wrote the book. the uh, The reason that has any depth at all <laughs> is that I I actually am this guy that I write about, <laughs> and the book is the book is essentially uh, you know it's this it it pokes fun. It's like this leader of all leaders. It's this character of sorts that mm -hmm. um you know takes every leadership principle he's ever read and he blows it up because certainly he has it and uh you know quite honestly if i can look at every chapter in my book and i've done it you know i mean mm -hmm. i've made it so much about me i have taken credit from other people um i have pointed my finger you know i have uh jumped ship <laughs> You know, I have done it all, and so those are the two reasons, quite honestly, that I that I that I penned this short work, which can be purchased on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the the uh, and I recommend it. By the way, that the the recent uh, Academy Award nominated film, Big Short, you know, uh, was <laughs> all about you know these you know big time you know leaders, and especially in the banking and Wall Street industry. And there was so much of your book that I saw in there. It was so I so we've changed uh, in our house. We when we say um, BS leadership, we're talking about the Big Short. <laughs> That's the, we've sort of adapted that. But uh, but one yeah. of the things is that uh, you know it, it, there is a, a 
a sort of a scene in that movie where Steve Carell's character stands up and kind of does the, uh, the, you know, hey, the king has no clothes kind of moment. And I just mm. think that's what you did with this. And, and like the reason it's, I think it's uh, so funny and, and then poignant is because we can't see ourselves in there, you know, and, yeah. and especially um, um, uh, I have a son who's, uh, I think, a, kind of a gifted leader, but he uh, if he hears somebody say uh, synergy, you know, one more time, he'll yeah. probably fall yeah. over and yeah. hit the ground. You yeah. know? So anyway, I loved yeah. it. So uh, um, um, what uh, along those same lines, um, one of the things I think that and I'm, I'm putting this on you so you can say you can disagree. But I do think that along with being at the table and building relationships, there's something about the role of humor in the relationship matrix that I mean, you know, would you agree with the fact that it, um, it, it's one of the components that brings us out of that um, rivalry kind of paradigm and into yeah. a playground paradigm, wouldn't you think? Because, yeah. I mean, if you think about kids in a playground, it's, it's you know, there's laughter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Matter of fact, I would, um, you know, I would maybe press it even further, almost just to make a point, not so much to be theological, but... I think sometimes humor actually is uh, maybe the communion of our time. Mm-hmm. Is One of the things that was interesting about Jesus around the cup and the bread, um, aside from its uh, biblical relevance in the Old Testament and what, what was being shown there, is that he, he takes a physical thing to represent a spiritual reality, which is not the opposite of the Old Testament, but it certainly is divergent. It was a, it, there were many physical acts that you must do to be in relationship with the Father in the Old Covenant. And now, you know, things are different and broken down and, and you know, veils are torn, and yet he, he sits with um, his, his guys there at the end, and he, and he takes this physical piece of bread and this cup this physical cup and they pass it and I think um, humor is actually I can liken it to that because mm-hmm. I sit at so many tables where um, the introvert or the underdog or the outsider um, is not engaged um, and but laughter engages humor engages everyone and so if in fact we're sitting at a table and there is a raucous kind of guffaw of sorts, and we all look around and kind of hold our belly and laugh. Everyone has participated, even physically, in some sort of communal act. And I think so. I think it's actually mm-hmm. critically important at the table. Yeah. Well, I think uh, you know you display that not only in your leadership, but certainly, you know, uh, your book is a, a reflection of that. And I, I think. It, you know, you're going to even uh, as I give your book to leaders, you know, we we have uh, some some common ground um, to laugh about, you know, because we see ourselves for sure. You know, Eric, it uh, it also reminds me of the idea that um, and I think we see this, you know, probably at least when the show was running spectacularly and a person like uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And the notion is, is if you can actually make um, a humorous comment about something, the degree to which you have to understand the subject in the first place um, is, is quite significant. And I, and I think I found myself oftentimes listening to a person like Stephen Colbert make just this uh, ridiculous comment about you know, whoever the political figure was or whatever the issue was but you recognized <clears throat> that his depth of understanding that issue uh, had to be immense in order to find the humor in it. And I found time and again when I was reading your book um, that your ability to um, you know, poke fun at some of these things meant that there was a depth um, of your understanding of the principle in the first place that I think was uh, was quite instructive. Um, in, in maybe drilling down into the book a little bit that uh, Rick asked you about, when you reflect on those different chapters and the, the whole 
notion of, of writing it the way you did. Was there a particular chapter that you found uh, to be most challenging or, or maybe most relevant as you think about your work and, and making Lexington a playground rather than a battleground? Well, I, you know, it's it's a great question. I've never actually thought of that question. Um, I have a couple of favorite chapters, and and as I tell you which ones they are, maybe maybe <laughs> a decent answer will come to your first question. But my favorite chapter is name drops keep falling on my head. That's my favorite chapter <laughs> because it's just so daggum true. I've actually been in the room where, you know, somebody says, "Do you know so and so?" And you know the honest answer is no, right? <laughs> but but the the best answer, or what you think might be the right answer, or there's some sort of pride thing, is to is to almost act as if you do know. And so that that one uh, was funny to me. Mm-hmm. And and then some are just catchy, and they're connected to other authors, which is you know no slight to them again. But you know I really like. Uh, B tags because in the <laughs> at least in in Kentucky every time I turned around a you know a congregational leader would be you know talking about their the B hag their big hairy audacious goal and so so writing about the benign tepid ambiguous goal was <laughs> you know, the, the B tags was <laughs> that one was funny to me when I was writing it um, but I would say um, I would say that the, probably the the one that is the most poignant to me that probably I I sit at uh, or sit with most often uh, personally and or see is this um, it's not your fault uh, reality. And, um, you know, it, it is almost, um, I just see it so often that, you know, we, uh, we tend to, um, we just tend to point and tend to use, uh, you know, fingers and tend to let ourselves off of the hook uh, mm-hmm. very easily, and uh, that that one becomes uh, quite quite a barrier uh, when we're trying to uh, work with you know, people of good faith and people of goodwill. Yeah, I uh, you know it's interesting. My that would have been um, the one that I think uh, most touched a raw nerve in me. Um, I think the notion uh, in leadership, particularly when you're trying to build a leadership culture in an organization, which of course Leadership Foundations is trying to do, um, how quickly when you begin to hold people accountable, um, including yourself, how easy it is uh, to begin to almost uh, create a kind of fluency in ways to explain how uh, you, it wasn't your fault, and it was someone yeah. else's fault, and it's just, a, it's a stunning um, reality. The other one that that I uh, probably chuckled at the most because I thought it was so clever was the whole idea about you know there's no I in team, uh, but <laughs> yeah. but but there is a M E as in me. <laughs> That's right. And, right. Uh, and and the thing that I thought was again just stunningly. Um, insightful about that is that at the end of the day, the great difficulty I think in leadership, and in itself it becomes almost a, a little bit of a, a catch-22, is that in order to lead, you, you actually do need a level of ego, right, to mm, be able yeah. to say, hey, you know, we're going to make Lexington a playground rather than a battleground. And in the very act of engaging that part of your ego, you simultaneously need to let go of that ego. Yeah. And so it, it creates this kind of third way that I, you know, my own experience, Eric, has been it is a rare person who's actually able to live in that that space. And I think, yeah. again, that chapter in your book um, just put a delightful spin on that tension uh, that it does take ego uh, but you've got to let go of that ego. And, you know, we really see that, you know, in the words of Jesus. I mean, I love it when, and it's almost a, uh, you know, Saturday night live skit. Um, John and James's mother comes up to ask Jesus, um, hey, can, you know, my boys um, have a, a right and a left position with you? And you anticipate that Jesus is going mm-hmm. to ac- absolutely bring down a thunderbolt of, uh, you know, um, 
like absolutely not can you do that but in effect he kind of affirms um, you know her um, sort of request and then ultimately turns to the two and says you know can you um, actually sup the cup you know that yeah. I am and uh, they say we can and he says yep you can I mean it, it's a really curious <laughs> moment in the leadership development uh, and that I've always thought, you know, there's it, it gets to this tension that I think your book beautifully talks about. So, well, thank you for that. I uh, I appreciate that. I started the uh, book with that chapter as the first chapter, um, mm-hmm. just because of my particular struggle and my uh, not living in that tension very well at times. There, there's an interesting. Um, I tried to do things backward in the book, so I actually put you know the. Um, you know, when you write those wonderful things to your friends, you know, that <laughs> you have to kind of go through and, you know, who do I, who do I say something to here that, um, you know, I won't offend. There's a person actually that has seen me in my entire leadership career and probably seen me make all these mistakes and hopefully is seeing some redemption here at this point of, of my life. Uh, although a probably continual tripping up redemption, if I'm honest, and his name's Marcus Patrick, and he's one of my closest friends, and we've been in leadership together now um, for 21 years. He was the first young man I ever mm. met as a youth pastor. Uh, he played on my basketball team. He's the leader of all leaders, and you know what I'm really thankful for, I guess, with a guy like him and even a, a team like I have here in Lexington or a team I have with the Global Youth Initiative and Leadership Foundations um, and other local leadership foundation presidents, is there's this there's this wonderful grace um, that I think people have shown me as I have muddled through uh, this stuff we call leadership, um, and I think even op- offering that grace um, to people of faith and people of good work and marketplace leaders and mm-hmm city leaders and church leaders and all leaders in our city is incredibly important. And, and even, you know, back to Rick's question about just breathing and looking at each other and laughing and saying, you know, we're all in this same progress together and it's a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually brings us closer together. So I appreciate the thought about that chapter, but recognize that it's, you know, one of, if I'm looking at the man in the mirror, that was a Michael Jackson reference, just in case y'all didn't know. <laughs> I did. Looking at the man in the mirror, then, um, you know, that, that is one that I, you know, I struggle with is the, mm-hmm. the M and the E, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in, in, when we get back to engaging leaders, uh, especially uh, in the context of taking, you know, finding leaders of good faith and goodwill and then, you know, uh, bringing them together, um, this is a huge, I think, key element because it takes an engaging leader to engage leaders, <laughs> you know, I think. And, yeah. and I think yeah. that part of the idea that you want that you think someone is engaging is that they bring, you know, some humorous insight or they see things, you know, that help you see yourself. So I just yeah. think that's great. I know there's this one. Um, I don't know if you heard of this author. He's kind of a Northwest guy. His name is Gerald Sitzer, but he did a book about uh, he had a. A horrific uh, situation where his uh, in a single car accident his daughter his mother and his wife were all killed in one a- single accident so he wrote a, a book about um, grief but one of the things he talks about is that as grief kind of mirrors humor in the sense that it expands the capacity of your heart mm. in, in every area so he was saying that even though he was has never been more broken than this experience uh, it also created a whole new capacity for laughing and yeah, for and, yeah. and for you know seeing and for hearing and I think that's the thing is that you know when you uh, expand the capacity in somebody's heart through laughter you also expand their capacity to care so uh, you know that's what I I'm, I'm blaming you for that <laughs> you know that's a I, you know I was sitting with I was in Immokalee um, one time which is there's a leadership foundation a local leadership foundation in Immokalee um, Florida. It's mm-hmm. called One by One, and 
the leader there is John Lawson. He's an incredibly reflective guy and incredibly wise. And I, I think people are drawn uh, to engaging leaders for multiple reasons. I mean, you don't have to be a funny guy to be, you know, um, to be to be attractive to other leaders. I mean, you know, John might draw folks to him just because of his wisdom and his reflectiveness and his mm-hmm. personality. But one time we were in a prayer time together as I was visiting down there, and he, he said, you know, Eric, you're a funny guy, which you never know how to respond to that. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> sure am. Yeah, you, you, know? don't, you don't know if they're complimenting you or just <laughs> yeah. saying something yeah. quite critical. Yeah, so it's just awkward. So, <laughs> But then he said something really revealing um, and, and rather kind of even caused some exploration in me. He said, you know, a lot of times, Eric, you know, the funniest people are the people with the most pain. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I think probably at the time I was like, well, yeah, that's refreshing. Great. Can we pray or something, <laughs> you know? Um, but it really is true that that there is something that happens in this space in our heart that gets expanded. So I, I agree with you, uh, Rick. And then, you know, when you're able to bring people to a place in, in any part of the heart, the expanse of the heart that is so wide, whether it be a, you know, a place where we reveal our fears or we reveal our worries or we reveal our sadness or our loneliness or we reveal our joy um, it's almost the backstage kind of pass into people's lives um, it's almost like you get you get a a passport you know to go into a part of somebody's being that you don't get otherwise and even sometimes time doesn't get you there or process doesn't get you there, or working to, together doesn't get you there. But it's when we share these experiences together um, across tables yeah. that uh, borders are, um, you know, enlarged. And so it is very purposeful, but not you don't use it as a strategy. But there is a wonderful purpose to it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Eric. Um, and again, I'm mindful of. Uh, you know, Jesus's own words. Um, and I actually, there's a question in this, but let me give you some background first. And I think it's Matthew 11 and it's the uh, passage where if you remember, um, John, who of course heralded Jesus is coming and said, you know, this is the one in whose sandals I am not worthy of tying. And now <clears throat> eight chapters later, he finds himself in prison he calls his disciples over and says, uh, go ask Jesus if he's the one. Um, and I, th- I think one, it's just a pause to say what happened in eight chapters <laughs> for John to go from kind of like, yep, that's the dude. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's the dude. Yeah. So they go off and <clears throat> they come to Jesus and they say, uh, you know, hey, are you the one? And Jesus in a very again, somewhat ironic way, says, well, go tell John this. And then he describes, you know, the blind see, the lame walk, the good news are getting, uh, you know, uh, the poor getting good news preached to them. And tell John, uh, blessed is he or she who is not, and the the Greek word there is scandalized by me. Mm. Um, And then he goes on to say, you know, people, uh, essentially, John and I are like um, two different people. One came uh, with lute and harp celebrating, and you did not say yes to us. We mm. then came with dirge and, you know, kind of a sad countenance, and you did not follow us. Um, essentially, this generation, you know, just doesn't get it. Um, and the background of that you know, is, yes, you know, we came in humor, you know, and that wasn't enough. We came in sadness, that wasn't enough. Yeah. And, it, and it was that scripture, Eric, that, that led Simone Weil, who's a wonderful philosopher, a French intellectual, say that there's two things that awaken one's heart to God, <clears throat> uh, beauty and affliction. Hmm. And I, I've oftentimes thought that that is the philosophical framework of which you just described that that really you know there's two things that awaken our heart to god there is humor um and then there is you know pain 
And uh, yeah. I think an ability to set a table um, demands, and I think leadership foundations do a good job of this, of being fluent in both those mediums, knowing yeah. when to laugh, um, but also knowing when to cry. And uh, yeah. with that, I, I'm curious, though, here's, here's a question. Um, I think that, you know, for the untrained eye, you could get to the scripture pretty quickly and go, yep, I see the man of sorrows. Um, right. This is a yeah. this is a story being told that you know that you would have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see that Jesus yeah. suffered. What is less obvious, but I think is there, is that Jesus was a man of humor, um, of joy. Mm. So to that end, how do you, given you know your wonderful skill with humor? Um, your ability to make people laugh, and knowing also that uh, becoming like Jesus is very important to you. Where do you see the humor uh, in Christ as you engage the scriptures and maybe other um, yeah, things as well? That's a neat question. I think the, you know, upon first reading, as you're saying, the untrained eye, you know, you, you can see the you can see that sorrow. I, I think you do have to. You have to make a couple of. You have to make a couple of connections um, to find the humor. Sometimes he just says funny stuff. I think. I mean, like I. I think when he said, you know, that's like uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle, or you know, <laughs> through a rope. I, that had to be a little bit of sarcasm, right? Because he could have just said something else that made some kind of sense, mm-hmm. but he just decided in that moment to make the most nonsensical statement which probably cracked some guys up who knows mm-hmm. um but the other thing that i think is just so relevant um you know i, I did put a a note in my book to my dad my dad and mom are both uh just an incredible part of my journey in uh finding out who i am of course but then also um my I mean, I love microphones. They were both stage presence people and uh, musicians, and and I've always loved the stage, and I've always wanted to be humorous, and they're both uh, a riot and ton of fun. Um, mm. But my dad is the is the one I wrote a note to that really taught me how to tell a joke, and he didn't really teach me like you sit down and go, hey, here's how you tell a joke. You got a beginning, you got an end, you know, I mean, you got a punchline. But just hearing the way he told story mm-hmm. uh, was just its something you could very easily uh, model yourself after. And so when I read uh, what Jesus is saying in story, and I think of how good of a storyteller he was in the parables, mm-hmm. I almost, and maybe I make too much of a leap, but I almost think, I bet that guy could tell a really good joke. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I bet, mm-hmm. I bet that when he was, when he was weaving a yarn that, you know, that didn't, you know, get into the canon, <laughs> you know, didn't get written down by somebody, there were side conversations happening mm-hmm. that we don't see that are like, did you, did you hear what he said when he told the one about? And so I just think it's evident, um, but it takes a little bit of, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of digging. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I understand Jesus' humor uh, better since, uh, I had a chance to see Larry David, you know, or, you know, the, the mm-hmm. whole, the whole, you know, mm-hmm. Seinfeld era, you know, where, yeah. where you begin to see, I mean, you know, there is a certain kind of, um, um, there's a, an ethnicity to, to, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, context. And, and I think some of the things he says, uh, would go right past a lot of us that aren't yeah. very Jewish or aren't very ancient. You know, sure. But I, yeah. I even love some of the things when, you know, when he asks a question like, you know, uh, what do you want me to do? You know, he says to the blind man and he goes, I'd like to see. And then I can just see Jesus. Like you said, it's not there, but I can just see him looking up going, he'd like to see. And then wink, wink, you know, like how about the rest <laughs> yeah, of you right. guys, you know, have no idea what's going on here. You know, so yeah. I just think that um, that's part of the engaging part. So, um, yeah, yeah, you, you're helping us uh, see that, especially um, in your leadership. So thank you. Thank you. You know, as we uh, begin to think about wrapping up, um, Eric, um, and we're, again, 
wrestling with this question of engaging leaders of, of good faith and goodwill. I'm curious, uh, well, let me back up and say that, you know, of course, one of the things about this wheel of permanent change for leadership foundations and the reason that we have placed an accent on a process rather than a product is the recognition that cities are living, breathing organisms. And so what is going to work programmatically you know, in a place like Delhi is probably, in fact, mm -hmm. needs to be different than what works in a place like, you know, Dallas. And what works in Lexington is going to be different than what works in Los Angeles. Um, with that being said, um, here you are uh, heading up now something called the Global Youth Initiative, which is taking our 79 leadership foundations around the world and really doing something that leadership foundations have never done, which is to begin to think about a programmatic response uh, to a number of cities all at one time, which brings a kind of scale and scope that, that really is, is quite breathtaking. I've had the chance to make mention of this on previous podcasts, Eric, about our partnership with the Basketball Hall of Fame, the National Basketball Retired Players, and now DOJ. And so here you sit, um, taking those three very different partners with very different visions, with very different cultures, and pulling them together uh, on behalf of mentoring young people uh, in cities around the world. So I, I think both Rick and I would be very curious, as would I think our listening audience, to uh, what are you learning and what are you finding uh, with this initiative as it helps uh, make cities playgrounds rather than battlegrounds? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I that's difficult now that the three functions and the you know this this wheel of change as they as we know that they move together, it's almost difficult to isolate one um, because of their connectedness. Yeah. yeah. And so, what we're really doing in the Global Youth Initiative um, is creating joint partnerships across. Um, you know, multiple partners, which is what we do locally as well. So it's just an expression of what we do in local leadership foundations. It's just happening uh, not on a grander scale, just a different type mm -hmm. of scale. Mm -hmm. And what what I have found in Lexington and in the Global Youth Initiative is that that it does take at times something very pragmatic that we can hold in our hands to bring us to um, what you might call a functional unity or a bringing together and um, you know that you know gone are the days that we you know sit around campfires and sing kumbaya and everybody just loves each other you know mm -hmm. it's 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 the action that also produces um, this uh, connectivity and so having a like passion is a great way um, and a great starter sometime um, to you know connecting people of faith and people of goodwill and it's interesting that, you know, in the partnerships that you mentioned, you know, one of them is with the Department of Justice, and it has, you know, 26 groups across the United States that are functioning together. And just in, in that regard, that's uh, many people of faith and many people of goodwill mm -hmm. with the like passion of seeing young people um, mentored and reaching their potential. And the same could be said of, you know, many people of faith and many people of goodwill. So it's actually in, in the National Basketball Retired Players Association or the Basketball Hall of Fame. And what I've found in each of those, and it is a great example happened in Chicago a few weeks ago, as Will McCall, um, one of the um, presidents of a local leadership foundation in Dallas, an incredible leader, and I were with the National Basketball Retired Players Association. And as we sat around that table, we just heard the passion for young people hmm. come out. And mm -hmm. it, is, it is those type of things that actually bring you around. So it's, it's almost, it could be almost mislabeled if we ever say that the first function is a mm -hmm. bearing, bringing people to faith, or the second or the third. Mm -hmm. It's actually that they all stand alone and are all also interconnected. And I think that's what the Global Youth Initiative is showing us can be done across the world. Hmm. That's beautifully said. Um, That's good, because the way you said, hmm, I thought I was wrong for a second. <laughs> I was like, man, 
<laughs> I could come back and get Nice me. try. <laughs> no, no, I think I think that is. Um, I mean, it's it's that's a <clears throat> response. I think in real time, you know, when you're sitting now in boardrooms and trying to figure this stuff out, and uh, it would be way too clinical and way too formulaic to say, well, first you engage leaders of good faith and goodwill, and once you got that nailed, uh, then you think about developing the capacity of others, and only then do you begin to think about joint programming and, uh, yeah, the the iterative um, process that all of these have with one another and uh, and really, I think, being awake um, and aware of when and how they are feeding off of one another is is exactly right, Eric. So that's uh, that was my hmm was a positive oh. hmm. <laughs> yeah, way to go. <laughs> well, thank you um, for this time. We uh, have used up a, a good part of the hour, and that's uh, exactly what we uh, we hope to do, Eric. And uh, you have given us great insight um, around this this again very important idea of leadership. Um, that engages uh, people of good faith and goodwill on behalf of cities. And, and again, the notion of a city becoming a playground um, versus a battleground and the notion that clearly what would be um, at the very middle of it would be a good sense of humor. I mean, I, you referenced the Zachariah passage that we use in Leadership Foundations that our ultimate vision is that cities become places where kids are playing on the street and the old mm-hmm. are sitting on their porch with cane in hand. Um, it's, it's impossible, I think, to imagine that image without um, giggles and chuckles and laughs. So, mm-hmm. Eric, thank you for the way that you've contributed to a better understanding for us around what leadership foundations are doing in this world of cities becoming playgrounds. Yeah, thanks again, Eric. For me, um, especially uh, in the spirit of loudership, I'll be using everything you said that was smart and pretending that I thought of it. <laughs> that's exactly right. So, so that's well, I say thank, thank you to you, too. And, uh, you know, it's honestly, a, it's bewildering to me at some, at some level that, you know, I get to engage in this conversation for a podcast, but it's even more bewildering that I, I get to play it all and I think I think there is a um, there is a wonderful God in heaven mm-hmm. who wants to play ball and so I'm, I'm glad I get to be in that game and, and thank you all for being some of my coaches and also fellow players it's it's a joy well we appreciate it and on behalf of the folks in Lexington and actually around the world with the the global initiative uh, thanks for your leadership and if you are listening and want to know more you can always find us at leadershipfoundations.org and you can send us questions or comments and again Eric Geary's Loudership available on Amazon so check it out (music) 